and welcome to Imagine Me and Utena, a Revolutionary Girl Utena podcast. I'm Panda, I'm your host, and I'm here with my co-host Alice. How you doing, Alice? I'm doing pretty good, actually. Today, we are doing another Friends Like That episode with our new friend, Fukiko, who I met in Japan. How are you doing, Fukiko? I'm doing okay after a week of very bad health luck. You have had some very bad luck lately, and I'm glad we were able to get you on this show. Uh, I'm, I hope you're feeling a bit better. I know that you, you fractured your toe or something. Indeed, also? I did. Yes, I don't recommend Ooh. running into Ooh. dumbbells. It's not the best for your health. <laughs> Oh, gosh, that's yeah. awful. <laughs> Wishing you a speedy recovery, for sure. Thank you. I met you, as I mentioned, when we were in Japan, sort of randomly. <laughs> Yasha and Vana and I ran into you at the musical Waiting in Line for Merch, and you are apparently from the old Empty Movement forums. Is that correct? That is indeed correct, yes. Even before that, I had been talking with Vana on AIM when I was in high school, so I remember I was 14 and she would have been about 19 at the time and I pestered her incessantly with questions about how to make an Utena website. Um, a few years later I hopped onto the forums and was active there for about a year and a half and I still kind of followed Empty Movement just on social media just as I remained an Utena fan and it was of course an invaluable resource and yeah then with the musical a friend of mine had extra tickets that she needed to get rid of and fortunately Myself and my girlfriend were available that day, and I just happened to check the Empty Movement Tumblr and saw that everyone would be attending the same day. And I sent Vana a message and met up, and here we are. Yes, and when we met you, you had a Naname braid in your hair that looked very good, <laughs> and I loved it. Thank you. You looked great. Thank you very nice. much. <laughs> and so you've been in the Utsuno fandom for a long time, but uh, we have a few questions. We have a couple of questions that we usually ask every guest. And starting off, uh, who is your favorite character? I think I know the answer to this, but uh, <laughs> I'll let you answer. Yeah, well, when I was younger, I definitely connected with and sort of clung to Judy, but now I'd say that Nanami is more of my favorite. Oh, good choice. Yes, and I also have quite a soft spot for Sionji as well. Interesting. Yeah, I uh, have developed a soft spot for <laughs> Sionji over the years. A soft spot or a bruise, perhaps. <laughs> Yeah, you're not wrong. Uh, and why don't you tell us a little bit? I mean, you sort of did tell us about your history in the fandom, but like, how did you end up getting into Utena? Yeah, you know, that starts even earlier than my connection to online fandom. So I had been a fan and still am a fan of Sailor Moon since I was quite young. I watched the old Deke dub on television in the early 90s and through that really got interested in anime. And near my home, there was a small comic book shop that rented anime videos and that was kind of the only place to get anime and I was friends I guess as much as an eight or nine year old can be friends with the owner of the shop and he <laughs> informed me about Utena when it came out because I don't know if you've seen the old VHS tapes but they had this big banner right at the top that said from the director of Sailor Moon. That's not the first yeah, time that, that. that cover has uh, made an appearance on this show. Right. So I'm about, I think if this was 97 or 98, I would have been about nine or 10, revealing my crone status here. And <laughs> I, you know, I rented those tapes of the first arc. And my understanding of it was a little skewed. I thought that the student council was trying to bring about the apocalypse. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that Utena was trying to prevent it. That was about my understanding of it. But I thought it was cool. You know, I thought that the, the visuals were interesting. Even as a small child, I really liked the music. Um, I found it, you know, unlike anything I'd ever heard before, and it really stuck with me. So that was just kind of my, my knowledge of Utena at the beginning was the first 13 episodes. Um, a few years later, I'd made some friends online and I went to Anime Expo 2000 wearing a Cardcaptor Sakura costume. And that was when, yeah, nice. and that was when um, Ikuhara was a guest there. And they did a... Oh, wow. Yeah, they, I actually, he, he signed a drawing of mine. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Yeah, we ran into him on just in the hallway. And my friend was cosplaying movie Utena at the time. And, you know, he noticed her costume and complimented her and signed her program. And I was just kind of there, not sure what was going on. But I had like a doodle on the back of a program or something. And he signed it. But um, the movie was aired at that convention as well. And I remember just, I'd never seen anything like that, anything so visually arresting and so kind of incomprehensible, but in an absolutely fascinating way. And that sort of piqued my interest in the series again. And by that time, I was a little bit older. I was sort of craving things with a bit more depth and um, obscurity. So from there, I kind of kept that in the back of my mind. And then around high school, that was when the um, the rest of the series started coming out officially in English, and I got into it then. And that's when it really got its uh, its teeth in me, I think. You are uh, also known for a movie jury cosplay that you did when you were a teenager. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, really? it still looks very good. Like, And you said that that was your real hair, right? It was indeed, yeah. I have an absolute uh, crap ton of hair, which lends itself very well to to those those big ringlets so yeah I, I did that and I still do that hairstyle from time to time uh when we would meet people while you were uh with us in the group that was how Vano would identify you to people who were, <laughs> uh from farther back in the fandom uh she was the one who did that really awesome movie jury cosplay <laughs> Well, that's very flattering. Thank you. And so, like, what was the fan reaction to the movie at Anime Expo? I don't think I had actually realized that there was, like, a a, a premiere in the U.S. like that. Yeah, you know, I think it was the first time it had really made it stateside. Um, the reaction of most people was as if they were seeing it for the first time. And I... You know, it was ages and ages ago, but I do remember lots of cheering and applause whenever characters would make their first appearance. You know, I remember the um, that scene in the introduction when Wakaba is giving Utena a tour of the school and then you see Judy and Miki fencing. And I remember when Judy took her helmet off and all her hair comes tumbling out that the whole crowd went wild. Iconic. <laughs> yeah. Iconic then, iconic it's now. It's such a it's such a striking visual, especially because uh, movie jury has so much more hair. Yes, so luxurious. <laughs> yeah, that that scene is very much goals for me. I still aspire to let my hair tumble out in such a fashion. <laughs> and so you've been in the fandom for a while. Has your opinion on anything on the show changed over the years, in particular? Oh, absolutely. I think, honestly, depending on where you are in your life and development, the characters become more or less sympathetic. And I think, you know, speaking for myself, who had quite a connection to Judy growing up, my opinion towards her has really gone through a lot of changes. And I wrote about this on my Twitter a little bit, but I think, you know, for, for my generation, a lot of us really 
connected with Judy. And by us, I mean um, queer women. And I think because now, you know, there's a lot more representation. You can see a lot more, I guess, examples and just types of queer women with whom you can relate. But for me, I mean, I remember basically if you were a queer woman online in the late 90s or early 2000s, your username was either Michiru, Haruka, Utena, Anthe, or Judy. <laughs> right? Or perhaps if you weren't into anime, you were like Zena or Gabrielle, uh, Willow or Buffy. But that was about it. Of course. Right? And, you know, if you're kind of trying to, you know, imprint on or connect to Michiru and Haruka, they're not actually that relatable. They're a little too perfect. There's not any real world repercussions for their queerness. It's all very, you know, idealized, which, you know, is fine to hope for, but you still find yourself feeling a bit lonely. But with Judy, I think a lot of us saw, you know, lesbian rage, lesbian resentment, lesbian... The angst. Angst, yeah. And it was extremely attractive for being, you know, a young, questioning queer woman. And also, the way it's framed in the show is it's almost noble that, you know, her, her suffering makes her interesting and it makes her intimidating and it makes her powerful, in a sense, you know. And so a lot of us, I think, really related to that we definitely internalize that as a way to kind of cope with our own you know whatnot but now that I'm older you know you see that it's actually completely ineffective that no matter how stoic you are no matter how much you push yourself down to the very bottom of yourself and claim that for strength if something comes at you that you're not expecting you're just as devastated as you would be if you were a raw nerve and I really felt that the musical captured that very well musical Judy is a lot more fearful especially in the second musical you see her just completely crumble and shrink in on herself when actually confronted with the fact of having her feelings known whereas in the anime I think she was a bit more stoic throughout. So yeah, to kind of sum it up, I think when I was younger, I definitely saw Judy as admirable and strong. But as an as an adult now, I can look on her and just be like, ah, being a teenager sucks. Being a queer teenager sucks even more. And that sort of thinking that it's your emotions that you need to pair away as a way to make yourself stronger, you know, that's a very attractive prospect when you're younger. But when you're older, you can come to see it as actually a pretty flawed mechanism. It's very romantic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, capital R romantic. Yeah. 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 I don't. I've always wondered why that across a lot of across time and culture, the same forms of angst keep being a thing and keep being romanticized in very specific mm-hmm. ways. Specifically, the my suffering makes me interesting right? mm-hmm. version. I think you know we want our suffering to have meaning. We want it to mm-hmm. have been worth it. So if you can romanticize it and add a sort of, I always say that they're kind of literary flourishes to your own pain, it, it makes it seem justified. But if it just sucked for the sake of sucking, then you know no one wants to experience that. So I think that might be part of the impetus behind it. Yeah, that would, I mean, that would make sense. You know, like we, we, we are the sort of the like, you, you, you hear people talk about how we're pattern mm-hmm, finders mm-hmm. and it would make sense that we would seek out patterns in our own suffering in order to make it make sense i mean it's kind of a a part of the themes of utana that you know she has to make things make sense and make the whole concept of the prince kind of does help her make sense of the tragedy of your parents are dead and you don't have anyone to rely on right now well 
you know, becoming a prince is something I can put my whole Absolutely. being into. Yeah. With Utena, uh, Utena is separated into, depending on who you ask, three or four distinct arcs. Mm -hmm. What would you say is your favorite arc of the show? Oh, gosh. You know, the first answer that came to mind was the Black Rose arc. And I think it's because it is such a marked shift from the tone of the first 13 episodes. And, Absolutely. You know, for me, who also, there was a huge, you know, a period of years between seeing the first arc and the second, that made that shift even more noticeable. And I really liked the darker tone. I liked just, you know, everything about it changed. The music got more kind of industrial percussion, the kind of chains and clanging into the music. The visuals got a little more kind of obtuse and strange. And I think harnessing someone's darkest impulses and using that as some kind of perverted form of power that was a really interesting concept to run up against and I really you know watching it again when I'm older and kind of seeing what it what it was trying to forecast what it was trying to hint at that this wasn't the first time this had happened that you know different methods had been tried to you know regain eternity or the power of the prince or whatnot it's it's really interesting but when I was in fandom, the kind of prevailing thought was that the Black Rose arc was useless. I've certainly heard that sentiment before. Right. I mean, it's it's under... I love the Black Rose arc. It's actually kind of my favorite, but I very much understand that people going, this is useless. Because in, in a purely utilitarian sense, I mean, kind of. Right. But I think people, like, their reason for saying it was useless, they're like, oh, well, in the end, they didn't even remember, you know, so what was the point? I'm like, no, that's that's what's important about it. The fact that they're forgotten, that's so crucial. But I think people just felt there wasn't payoff, I guess. But I thought that if you're looking at the story, not just in Utena's timeline, but as something that's, you know, been going on for, you know, who knows how long, it makes it a lot more sinister. And you realize there's a lot more going on there. You might have first thought. Yeah, it seems in our discussion with people who were fans back in the day, there is kind of this recurring theme of like people approaching the story from either a more cut and dry utilitarian plot is the only thing that that I'm looking at looking at plot and only plot kind of thing. And you also have on the other side a really really reading into themes from the very beginning. And it's not surprising because um, any any work that kind of tries to be esoteric or mm-hmm. vague <laughs> to any degree is gonna it just has this as a problem i mean any work period is inevitably gonna have some form of this mm-hmm. as a problem can you think of any other examples well i mean one thing that i would think of is have you ever heard of i encountered this recently reading something as watson or reading it as doyle mm-hmm. i i am familiar Holmes. with this but if you would like to explain yeah, it's the idea of that there are two, like, you can read things in two different ways. And the Watsonian way is to read it from a story from the inside as the internal motivations. And the Doyleist, or I've heard someone say Holmesian, but I think it's more Doyleist, is looking at it, why did the writer oh, do interesting. this? And, like, I've had this conversation about um, um, Eva before, with why is the end the way it is and having to separate separate out sort of those two perspectives and one of the things that happens a lot is that people who are more kind of where analysis of a a work or understanding or reading of a work kind of ends at plot summary get really 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 mad about the Mm -hmm, end of eva mm -hmm. 
which to some extent I can't blame them, and just cannot really get past it. It's like a stumbling block. It, it just there it breaks their minds, and it's so maddeningly, frustratingly pointless <laughs> that they cannot glean any, seem to glean anything from it. Whereas someone who's when you approach the whole thing from kind of where plot is more of a secondary supporting element to a more broad view, like the end actually makes a lot of sense. You can glean a lot of stuff mm-hmm. from it, and I don't know. Like I, I wonder if that's. I don't think that's just anime. I think it's in a lot of things, but you definitely see a lot of it mm-hmm. in anime. And I think more in the past than now. I feel like now that the trend is kind of for these very tidy, um, I almost want to say people-pleasing narratives, whereas in the past it was a bit more abstract, a bit more experimental. Yeah, it, it helps that the anime of the 80s and early 90s is just kind of yes. the Wild West. <laughs> I, I mean, wow. Some of the stuff that anime that anime like creators and directors got away with, and animators mm. got away with, in the eighties blows my mind. And it's cool, but it's also how did anyone like <laughs> make this? How are you allowed? How are you allowed? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I often wonder what the success would be of trying to make something like Utena in a modern day and like in the modern day animation field and i feel like ikahar would probably have a bit more difficulty but i mean he did sort of lie his way into making utina in the first place so he would probably just do that again Mm -hmm. you know actually i think he probably could have the difference was that it would suck Because they definitely would have let him make something weird today. The difference is that his ability to make that weird thing would have been a lot more compromised by the sort of control of the larger company. Because nowadays they'll let you do weird stuff, but they're also going to make sure that they keep checking up on you because anime is not guaranteed to make money. Whereas in the 80s, there was a time period where it's just like... They were kind of, fuck it, just do whatever you want. We're going to make hand over fist because they were going to make hand right. over fist. And I think specifically in the case of Utena, it was, there was that vacuum post-Evangelion that wanted something kind of similar, something with a lot of mythos and, you know, kind of psychological elements, whatnot. So Utena fit in perfectly, whereas now that's not so much in demand. Yeah, we've uh, had plenty of discussions about Evangelion on this show to the point of actually doing an Evangelion and yes. Utena episode. Oh, fun. That we will eventually do a second part for uh, once we can get everyone uh, scheduled together. But we often say that the only good Evangelion fans are Utena fans. <laughs> I mean, it. It's a joke, but most of the ones I know that I like like mm-hmm. both. It, it there's they're similar, you know. Like I mean, of course, I can say there's a lot of things. Utena has a lot of sort of crossover potential of discussion wise with a bunch of really really mm-hmm. good stuff. Definitely. And you uh you hadn't seen any of the, you hadn't seen the musical that came out previously before you went to the Black Rose one. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. How did you, uh, going into the Black Rose musical, not having any idea about the previous musical, how did you, like, what were your first impressions? Uh, what, like, were you 
did you go have any expectations going in? To be honest, my expectations were on the floor going in just because anime musicals, Understandable. Right? Anime musicals are not necessarily known for being very high quality. Um, We've all seen the 1995 movie. <laughs> yes, we have. Man in a Chuchu or w- suit. Whatever it year was, that that was. It was music. inspirational. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> right. Yeah, so especially because I'd seen, not live, but I'd seen the recordings of the newer Seiramu, and I was a little disappointed with those. Um, I thought specifically. Oh, really? Mm-hmm, I thought, especially for, you know, an anniversary kind of deal, I expected higher quality which I didn't get, but that's, you know, neither here nor there. So I kind of expected it to be like that, to be sort of a, you know, cursory pantomime of what Utene is, kind of just hitting, like a greatest hits sort of deal with, you know, subpar singing and and that's that. But what I got instead was something that really understood what makes Utena Utena and it really just captured the feeling and kind of like I was saying earlier, it sort of built upon some themes that were already in the series and refined them a little. I kind of say that it feels like the show aged 20 years to perfection. I definitely would agree with you there. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, I was I was blown away. I, I was there with my girlfriend and at the very beginning, you know, you have Siko come out and just give the general, you know, blurb about no photography, no food or drinks, whatnot. And I was like, oh, this is this is cool. This feels like the show. And it started going and it opens up, you know, with with a bang or rather with a an act of arson. <laughs> yes. And, you know, that was certainly um, a really a really good start. A really yeah, a really impressive, impressive opening. opening. And I started thinking, OK, maybe this is legit. And when Zetayume Mokushiroku came on, I just started crying. Like, I just burst into tears because it felt so right. And actually to be there in person and have it, you know, just the sort of 360 degree experience of live theater was, oh my goodness, it was absolutely amazing. So after it was over, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to do something very irresponsible. And I bought a ticket for a few days later and literally dashed from work to make it. (laughs) Like, just absolutely just ran to the theater and slid into my seat with a few minutes remaining that's incredible (laughs) yeah oh god it was wonderful and you you live in japan now but you are from the united states how did you end up moving yeah you know i've been into japanese language and culture from a very young age as as you probably gathered and my university major was japanese literature and language i studied abroad my second to last semester and just living in Japan, it felt very right. So after graduation, I, I came here and I've been here since. How many years have you been living in Japan? Nine. Oh, wow. That's a long time. Yeah, that yeah, is. Yeah, almost at my decade mark. And, you know, I've not really been a, an adult in the United States. So I'm, I'm an instructor. And sometimes, you know, I'll get asked questions about American office culture or business culture. I'm like, you know what? I don't know. <laughs> My entire, you know, working career has been spent here. So I can really just kind of conjecture. What What has been the thing that you've had to adjust to the most uh, living internationally? Hmm. Nothing too major in my own experience. I think, honestly, just adjusting to Japanese apartments, apartment life. Um, you know, small, thin walls, no insulation. So it's usually... The temperature is worse inside than outside, you know, hotter inside your house in the summer, colder 
than outside in the winter. But that's about it. Yeah. Oh, really? it's terrible. But otherwise, you know, I think I do have an advantage in that I speak the language to a degree that I can, you know, function in most situations. I can do my own taxes in Japanese. I can go to, you know, government offices and get by if there's any problems to that degree. Um, you helped me out in a train station yeah. <laughs> where I had uh, not tapped my uh, my train card on the way out of uh, a previous train trip and i couldn't figure out why it wasn't working (laughs) but thankfully you were with us and were able to talk to employee at the bus station (laughs) you are safe now my sweet child thank you mother for my life (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i think it really kind of just depends on how much you integrate yourself when you're living in, in any foreign country um it's very easy to kind of get into a sort of, I guess, expat bubble, especially if you're living in Tokyo, because, you know, plenty of places make that available. And, you know, that's fine if that's what you want to do. But I do think that getting out of that bubble and trying to just sort of accept that you will be uncomfortable and you will be confused and be okay with that is is a good way to to learn and then to get comfortable. So it's been a lot of that over the last nine years. Yeah, you you definitely have to have realistic expectations. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, it really just depends on where you choose to kind of insert yourself, where you choose to kind of make your your base. Um a friend of mine, they sort of learned Japanese and integrated themselves in the LGBT scene very very strongly, um to the point that they're volunteering at LGBT events, doing activist work, that sort of thing. And that's great. Um, But what's very funny is that they learned most of their Japanese from bars. (laughs) So (laughs) they have a lot of, you know, a lot of slang, really colloquial expressions, and that's great. But they they can't really read. They've had no, you know, experience (laughs) with with text. Yeah. And then polite language is, you know, completely nebulous. Whereas for myself, I really integrated myself in um, the Takarazuka fandom. That's the all-female theater troupe. And that fandom is actually mostly um, older women. I'd say you know, women in their, their 40s and up. And it's governed by extremely polite language, lots of you know, social hierarchies, and very minute ideas of politeness. So it's a very anxiety-inducing environment to uh, grow up in, as it were. But you know, that really helped me out in in certain situations. But then, you know, conversely, I have, I'm not very good with slang. I'm not very good with speaking roughly. So when you get myself and my friend together, it's a very funny combination. Okay, I actually have a question about that. Sure. From what I've read, I've been a little confused. Is this, is it a style of theater or is it a specific theater company? It's a specific theater company. Um, it okay. got started over 100 years ago. It's actually owned by the Hankyu Train Company, which is operating down in, in hmm. Kansai in the Hyogo Prefecture. And it originally started out just as kind of an attraction to get people to ride the train line. And <laughs> from there, it's just, you know, grown and grown over the years. And now it's, you know, this huge enterprise. Because, it see, yeah, it seems really monolithic. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I've seen its footprint in everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's footprints there in Utena, kind of. It's um, Review Starlight. Mm-hmm, I've heard of it. Was yeah, was I mean, feels as if it were literally just 
made in order so people would know that that was a thing because <laughs> <laughs> it's just apparently has that footprint all over it that's interesting i, I had always kind of wondered if it were just a single company or if it was actually sort of a larger thing well you see a lot of uh takarazuka style musicals which may contribute to that confusion mm-hmm Yes, you know, the new Sailor Moon musicals, they kind of decided to go that style and do a female-only cast, including a lot of former Takarazuka actresses were, were part of that. The first Tuxedo Mask, uh, Yamato Yuga, was a former top star from Takarazuka. <sighs> uh, Queen Beryl was, uh, what is her actual name? I just know her nickname is Gaichi, but she was, yeah, a former Otokoyaku as well. I love Yamato so. Yuga. <laughs> there is a part of me... The, the gay part that uh which is that <laughs> utana the utana musicals were takarazuka style as much as i love the male cast members i just i don't know i think it would suit utana i think it yeah it really yeah. would it, it would and it wouldn't i think something that's really interesting about takarazuka is especially when you have a villain when you have a male villain in takarazuka being played by a woman it gets just a different bent even though the character is male, because it's being played by a woman, you can kind of, I don't know, the, the sort of villainy gets a different a different tone to it. It becomes even a little bit more sympathetic, I think. But I think in the case of Utena, we don't want to kind of have that, you know, the male characters are, it's a cultural masculinity that's being criticized and called into question. And I think it, having it played by by male actors is... I don't know it just feels more right personally to me i feel like if you had some really you know cool otokoyaku toga or akio or something it would almost make it a little bit more how do i want to say this i feel like the audience might excuse it a bit more or get a little too starstruck i could definitely Whereas, see that yeah 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 i can see that that's actually that scans mm-hmm. i can only imagine that trying mm-hmm. to cast a woman to play akio would be a nightmare yeah right and I, I can't i can't picture it like i just i feel like it would just become a completely different character yeah the original musical was uh takarazuka style i believe mm-hmm. or at least uh had an all-female cast right is this the original with the head yeah. in it <laughs> also it is objectively the best musical <laughs> why would anyone doubt its Ridiculous power human <laughs> Oh, well, what what was it that um, I think uh, Nagumo was translating the interview with Ikuhara and said that because they tried to make the first musical like an exact copy of the show, it almost came out like self parody. <laughs> and yeah. I think you know, oh, it's beyond right? a, a human in a chuchu suit is absolutely self parody. <laughs> it was nightmarish. <laughs> Felt like like literally you watch it and you feel like you're having a stroke. Right. No, I've definitely seen it, but I think I have repressed it because all I really remember is just the choo-choo suit. It's honestly not very memorable just as a musical. Like some of the songs are not that bad and I don't even think the performances are that bad. But like there's just, I don't know, like Utena doesn't have pink hair and it just like... Oh, she does, and I forgot yeah. about Right, isn't it, like, not even, it's not even wigs, right? It's just, like, spray and hair color or something? Well, they are, I, like, they don't really have hair color. I think maybe, uh, I don't even remember if the Toka has hair color, but I know that Uth- Didn't they, like, give Anthe brown hair? Yeah, well, uh, there's an original Anthe design that had, uh, brown hair, but, yeah, like, they all had, yeah. like, more natural-looking hair colors, and it just, it looks so strange. 
<laughs> I, and the wig game in this musical is just absolutely out of this world. Oh, I know. Oh, oh it's so good. I, I can just like stare at the bromides for hours just admiring the wigs. So I know what a bromide is, but why do we call it a bromide? Because it, it, it's a picture, but a bromide sounds like a chemical. I... Right. Well, that's what photographs used to be called, I believe. I think it's just like an old oh. guy like or something. Well, okay. Uh, I looked it up on Wikipedia. The one time I've done research on this show. <laughs> they It comes from uh, bromide paper was originally used for uh, making the photos. And now it's just sort of become like a, a default term for... Uh, the photographic portraits of celebrities sold for commercial purposes. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things I've just encountered it so much that I've just sort of taken it for granted. I'm like, oh, I guess that is kind of strange, isn't it? I, yeah, I had also just sort of not questioned the use of the term. I was like, oh, this is what these things are called. <laughs> right. And then there's there's words where it's like the, in Japanese, it's the inventor's name is what we call it. Like a stapler is called a hotchkiss. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Mr. Hotchkiss. And then um, an x-ray is Rentalgen from Rentgen who invented it. So That's fascinating. I, I did not know that. <laughs> I can see that. I mean, we call it a mason jar after the guy who invented yeah. it. There you go. Which, fun fact, if you didn't know, that's that's why it's a mason jar. It has nothing to do with masons. I also <laughs> had no idea. Thank you, Alice. I always assumed that it was from the masons. All right. I learned something <laughs> new every day. What has been the biggest thing that you've had to adjust to in, like, learning and using Japanese in your daily life hmm. if anything I don't know I guess perhaps um just having situationally appropriate Japanese like I said I I learned it my my kind of immersion environment was one that was very polite very rigid so that's how I learned to speak and then when I would be hanging out with people who were my age they'd always be like, do you have to speak so politely? Like, you sound kind of stuck up or you sound kind of distant. Like, chill out. And I'm like, I don't know how to chill out. <laughs> <laughs> Which could just be a statement about my life in general. But so that and then I remember another instance where I, I did endeavor to speak more casually, except I ended up speaking like a very coarse man. Oh, no. <laughs> Which, like, coming out of, you know, me, I was in, like, a dress with pearls and curls and all that, and then just walking past a kind of smelly part of Hibiya and just be like, ah, kse. like, it, it was bad. And my Japanese friend is like, don't say that. It doesn't match you at all. <laughs> so <laughs> otherwise, I guess something that you just kind of get over time is realizing just that the way certain things are expressed is going to fundamentally be different from how you do it in your native language. Mm -hmm. You know, Japanese is actually, it's very, it's pretty flowery in how certain things are described. Or were you to use the same kind of description in English, it would sound maybe cheesy. But in Japanese, it doesn't read that way. It just does read as very, you know, effusive and adoring. But I think, I remember I was translating a scene from the Rosa Versailles Takarazuka play. And it's the scene where Andre confesses his love to Oscar and she reciprocates and that's all good. And they're embracing. And Andre says something that's like, ah, the impossible dream has crystallized and become a sepia-colored fossil. And I listened to that, God, maybe a hundred times, just being like, what? that can't be correct. <laughs> I'm like, 
but I, I even went, you know, it's from the manga. So I was able to just, you know, read the actual words and no, no, I didn't hear it wrong. That's actually what he said. And, you know, I, I asked some of my Japanese friends, I'm like, is this weird to you as well? Is this kind of a strange phrase to you as well? Or just to me? And they're like, it's, it's a little, you know, flowery, I guess. And I'm like, but yeah, fossil, like that's, I wouldn't exactly bring that up when I'm like having my love actualized. It's kind of a, a mood killer, I think. And they're like, oh, yeah, I guess so. So... <laughs> sometimes yeah I'm, yeah I'm 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 still trying to like process that that's because obviously i know what it means obviously like it makes sense <laughs> but it's just like it's that kind of startling word choice that i expect either from translation or from really really interesting poets <laughs> exactly right and you know when i was translating the musical it was, I was yeah i was actually going to ask you about that next yeah, it was really, really interesting because, you know, I'd watched the subtitle version for so long that just kind of in my head, those subtitles were ingrained as, you know, this is what that character says in this situation or in this scene, rather. But actually listening to it again on my own and just sort of tossing the subtitles, I realized that the the nuance in a lot of scenes was a lot different or there were things that didn't quite make it to the English translation, didn't get picked up on. And that, you know pardon the uh the expression but that kind of revolutionized my world um (laughs) and one of them in particular that absolutely did not come across in the english localization is how judy speaks and Hmm. a lot of people kind of have her with this you know kind of stoic but still a little bit refined formal way of speaking when they translate her into english but that's not how she speaks at all i say she speaks like a disillusioned rogue (laughs) Very coarse, very, yeah, very rough, extremely masculine the way she speaks. And it doesn't really come across at all in English. So you actually, in in retranslating, I've been kind of trying to, to rough it up a bit to, you know, the closest analog in English. But yeah, it's completely different. But what's interesting... So how does she sound? Well, to do an example, there's the... Uh, when Sionji appears, reappears at the school after you know, the interference of, of Mikage. And he's like, oh, I'm going to join the student council again and everyone will love me, da-da. And all the other student council members are kind of grousing about it. I, I didn't translate it this way originally, but I might go back and do this. But I had Judy saying like, oh, is he really going to waltz his ass back in here? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's pretty good. Right. And what's interesting, though, is you have that one scene with Shiori and her little you know group of hangers-on and... They're like, oh, so Shiori, what did you say to your ex when you broke up with him? And she's like, oh, you really want to know? Okay. And then what she says is really coarse. She basically is like, don't fuck with me. What the hell are you doing? And she says that. And then it's like, oh, does that make me a brute, Teehee? And Judy's standing right there. And she's actually making fun of the way Judy speaks. Like, it's a subtle little jab at Judy, and no one really realizes that that's what she's doing. At first, it kind of sounds like, oh, she's, you know, kind of bluffing or showing that she's she's tough or she's cool. But what it actually is, is it's, it's again, her using Judy for clout. Wow, I had no idea. I definitely always interpreted that bit as just her, like, kind of showing off. Yeah, mm-hmm. same. Uh, do you, you did some translation work for the musical. Do you want to tell us a little more about like what all you did, like what all you worked on? Sure. The first thing I popped in to do was they streamed the first musical and I, I went back and watched that because I hadn't seen it. 
and we got to the end and then the curtain call started and that hadn't been translated and I was like Psh, I've been watching theater performances for like a decade in Japanese like if anyone knows the tried and true phrases of a curtain call you know I, I feel pretty confident about that so I did the curtain call for the first musical um and then I came in and Nagumo did most of the preliminary translation work for the second and I did proofreading so because we don't have a script and we are just doing it by ear mm -hmm. um I think it was nice just to have a, another pair of ears to to go in and do some things so I did that there were some parts that were just really difficult to to suss out and I I helped with kind of the more garbled parts I'm going to do the curtain call for that one as well but I finished up the translation uh, on the airplane to the States for my summer vacation. So I've been a little busy. <laughs> but yeah, and then I yeah, I went in and and just did some. Some of the lines were lines that were from the show. And so we used the Nozomi subtitles for that. But especially in, in the Judy scenes, like in Shiori's um, elevator scene as well, that the nuance of that I found to be different than what Nozomi had gone for, where... Shiori, in the English translation, they sort of frame it that it's more on Judy. It's like, Judy thinks she's better than me because she's so great, so I hate her. But actually, Shiori's more putting the focus on herself. She's like, I'm so... I think what she says is I'm plain and worthless. Like, jimi de noko, merito ga something like that. Um, and she's sort of saying like that because she doesn't see herself as having any worth, she can't accept that Judy would have any reason to be nice to her other than because she's got, you know, a, <clears throat> a superiority complex or something like that. And then she already says, you know, that's pathetic. It wasn't even, it made me feel pathetic. It's that the idea of, of thinking that, of not being able to accept it other than as, you know, as pity, that's a pathetic feeling. So then she tried to change the relationship by, you know, by what she did with, with the guy or whatnot. But then that, and then she says that made me even more pathetic because I think in the back of her mind, she knows that's not the way to improve oneself by knocking someone else down. That, you know, you should just try to work on your own insecurities and accepting that rather than punishing someone else for being better than you. But that's, you know, that's that. Um, so I thought that that was interesting that we actually get a little bit more self-awareness from Shiori than the English would have you believe. And I almost get the sense in that episode or in that, that scene that she was almost kind of on the cusp of, of doing the right thing, of trying to make amends and trying to, you know, improve herself in a way that would, you know, benefit everyone. But then the Black Rose, you know, ensnares her and kind of subverts that into something more toxic. Yeah, she is definitely different. Yeah, I feel like Shiori in the musical has a much different energy from she. Well, not different, but well, yeah, I guess different is the appropriate word. Uh, a different energy from Shiori from the show. Mm hmm. I thought so. How did you enjoy the evil villain laugh there that Shiori does? Because <laughs> that was a pretty great moment. I'm not gonna lie. Oh my goodness, she was she was fantastic and she was terrifying because I think musical Shiori definitely was more calculated than show Shiori. In the series, for example, when she's you know meeting Utena for the first time and kind of explaining you know what's what, she ends up talking about her relationship with Judy and then how things soured and how she feels bad about it. And in the series, when she says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say all that, that to me reads as genuine. That does read to me as she, you know, she babbled and now she's a little bit embarrassed. But in the musical, she's like, oh, teehee, I didn't mean to, you know, say all that, silly me. And it definitely reads as a humble brag 
that she's like, oh, you know, well, I was friends with Judy Arisugawa. Like, I'm, you know, that's my connection. It's, again, using Judy for clout. And it's, it feels very calculated. Yeah, I can see that. Like, I, I never read that, that bit that way. But yeah, I can see where you would have that impression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like musical Shiori is a little bit closer to movie Shiori in that she owns her her evilness more. <laughs> Whereas I think in the series, you know, she keeps making these these bad choices and digging herself deeper and deeper because that's kind of all she knows. But you do kind of get the sense that she does want to climb out of it. Whereas in the musical in the movie, she's just like, no, this is me and deal with it. You know, in the musical, she doesn't scream when she gets the black rose put in her, whereas Wakaba and Kozue do. And she doesn't... Oh, what's interesting, too, is um, in when she appears at the beginning of her duel in the musical and, you know, starts saying, you know, this is the true me, blah, 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 I'm going to kill the rose bride. Utena's like, oh, it's the fault of the black rose, isn't it? And Anthe's response is, hmm, perhaps. <laughs> I did notice that, actually. She's like, maybe so. <laughs> She's like taken aback in a way that she's just not taken aback by the others. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, oh, yikes. <laughs> in, in summation, yikes. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I didn't think it was possible for the uh, like the the black rose, like stabbing rose scene to become more visceral than it already was. But holy shit right. in the musical. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. like I was yeah. it makes my skin crawl a little bit. Oh, I know. I was honestly just yeah. impressed that they could, the actresses could scream so consistently without ruining their throats. Right? <laughs> they had to have done some kind of like um, dub over or something because, wow, that was that was a lot of energy. Especially in there. Right? Wakaba. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, she was Aww. she was so good. Yume is absolutely unreal. I cried the entire duration of Wakaba's duel the first night I saw the musical for sure. I think I did too, yeah. <laughs> What was your favorite part of, like, seeing the musical live for the first time? Oh, man. Well, again, I went in not knowing what to expect. Um, The friend who I got the tickets from had seen the first one, but she personally wasn't that impressed with it. So, again, I was just like, okay, well, you know, I do like Utena. This could probably be, you know, kind of fun. Um, The best part of seeing it, though... Again, just from the very beginning, it felt very authentic. It felt like Utena. Um, and I love what they did with the set design. I love how they used the shadows. Yes. Yeah, so a good. lot of that was expertly done. Oh, I, I think I think I know what my favorite my favorite part was. So in Mikage's Duel, it starts off with just generic, well, not generic, but just background music. But then his duel song starts playing. And I remember, like, I recognized, you know, that melody, and I leaned into my girlfriend. I'm like, oh, that's like his duel song. And then the singing started, and I just, again, burst into tears because it was just so, it was, you know, that wonderful equation of nostalgia plus something new. And yeah, it was just like something that I already had within me was sort of taken out and polished and handed back to me and oh my goodness it was incredible chills absolutely chills yeah hearing uh like series music sung by like an ensemble cast like hearing zetai unme mokishiroku live is a a transcendent experience yeah transcendent is absolutely the word for it god it's real good (laughs) it was so good yeah i mean i've always loved the song it's always been a good song but just 
Uh, is Jury your favorite in the musical as well? Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, I do really, really like how she's portrayed in the musical. Um, I think that Riona Tatimichi adds a really... Again, she, she humanizes her because she puts that fear there. And, you know, the scene where Shiori you know, confronts Judy with a locket, she's terrified there. And it actually was to the point that it was very uncomfortable for me to watch because it it plays like someone being outed against their will. Oh, absolutely. Very, very scary. Yeah. And that, uh, yeah. yeah. And I don't know, you know, if everyone who's watching is going to pick up on it, but, you know, speaking for myself, I, I definitely got that feeling from it. And that that very particular fear underneath was, I think, done very, very well. So I really like how she's portrayed. Of course, Nanami is... Just, I mean, are there even words that are worthy of Nanami in the musical? Right? Perfectly cast. But really, I think everybody was just spot on with the casting. Agreed. Yeah, it just, again, it didn't just feel like a vehicle for idols, which a lot of these anime musicals end up being, where, you know, you get some idols, you put them in the role, they do their thing, and that's that. Like, this really felt like it was chosen very conscientiously, very deliberately, and that the people understood, you know, who they were playing. So, I mean, just going through Utena, you know, Ami Nojo is fantastic as Utena. She's got that just, you know, normie vibe, <laughs> you know, and like, because everyone else, they seem like they're really doing, you know, they're, they're playing a character. And yes, she's playing Utena, but she seems just so open and genuine. And her facial expressions, her body language, the way she speaks is, it just feels, you know, like just like a real, a real normal person who's out of their depth and it's wonderful. Ami Nojo, is she, uh, is she an idol or I know that she's done other stuff. Yeah, she's from Nogizaka 46, I believe. But yeah, she. I've heard of that one. Yeah, Yasha and Vanna told me that the first musical, there were a lot more fans that were clearly, like, male fans of Ami Nojo of going Ami, in. Ami, that makes sense. Yeah. But uh, I think that the crowd was a lot more diverse for the second musical, and it probably... <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if I don't know if fans who went there for idol uh, stuff really got behind the Utena concept. <laughs> Right, right. Because like, kind of the whole concept of, of idols and idol music is that it's supposed to make you feel good. It's very right? accessible. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, accessible, you know, just if you gambaru, if you, you know, do your best, everything will be okay. And then it's, it's like, hmm, well, you did your best, huh? Sorry, it wasn't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm just imagining all the idol fans just kind of being like, oh, and just slinking home and staring at the ceiling all night. <laughs> But yeah, I didn't think of it before, but Utena is very much the anti-idol, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a it's a whole social commentary, Utena, and it's. I mean, I'm gonna kind of go on a, t- a tangent here, but my other favorite series is Onisamae, which does have a few kind of visual homages in Utena that some people might not be aware of. But the conclusions of both series are radically different. In Onisamae, it ends with all these people were messed up and had a lot of problems that caused them a lot of grief, but they've come to understand themselves better, the people around them have come to understand them better, and they will be doing they will be okay going forward. They've learned how to handle themselves and things will be great. So on a, like an interpersonal level, in a very small kind of micro level, it's very happy. 
And then Utena, it's like, well, all these people have problems which are reflective of larger societal problems, and you're all fucked. So uh, <laughs> keep on fighting the good fight, I guess. I mean, I guess Utena does have, like, Utena is not bleak to the point of despair right. so much. Right. But it's also, it's, it's perhaps more that it's uncompromising mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in that look. Like it's not going to let you off the hook easily. Absolutely, it's not gonna. It's not. It's not going to pedal you despair. It's thirty frames a second, <laughs> but it's also not going to not do that. Right, right. Like, yeah, I agree. It's definitely not bleak for the sake of being bleak. It's not just you know depression porn, but it is a bit of an indictment, and I think that doesn't necessarily have to be. 100% depressing. It can be, you know, it can light the fire under your ass, so to speak. And I really like it for that reason. But yeah, going back to kind of idols and the message idols try to to send out, it definitely is not really aligned with what Utena's, uh, the takeaway from Utena for most people. For sure. Um, do you still do any cosplay? I know that you're a, a, a working adult now, but uh, <laughs> do you still, other than just sort of like interacting with the fandom, do you uh, still do anything like fandom creation wise? Yeah, you know, I stopped cosplaying after high school just because I didn't have the time and then, you know. It's, it's your own money after high school, and it's a, it's a pricey yeah. hobby. So no, I haven't actually put on a costume other than for some you know birthday parties. But I actually, after seeing the musical, I really want to cosplay again. I'm thinking of doing a, you know, 16 years later glow up and doing Judy again, but we'll see. The musical is definitely costume porn. It really is, yeah. Just having those, yeah, yeah, those 3D references of an actual costume on a human being is is very useful so i might do that i don't know but as for creating things in a fandom sense since the musical has sort of reignited my utina passion i have been doing a bit of writing um nothing complete so far but if you uh you might have gleaned from talking to abby she and i are really into post otori judy and nanami as a pairing (laughs) i don't think that she has told me this but i love this oh yeah it's it's good stuff um so i've been pecking out a few stories to to that effect but i will let you guys know if any of them ever reach completion oh uh, yeah absolutely um are there any uh fandom artists or cosplayers that you are particularly a fan of yeah you know i don't i haven't really followed it well enough to to know names of course i love abby's cosplay um i love abby's cosplay her shiori is so good. So good. Yeah. And then, you know, when I was cosplaying back in the day, it was just, you know, with my friends and they did some really, some really nice stuff. My, my best friend, Stacy, she did a really beautiful Utena Rosebride dress. And the first time we cosplayed together, she did, it's that one manga illustration where Utena has the white jacket and the white skirt and the jacket has all the medals on it. Oh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. She did that one. And when we first cosplayed together, she was wearing that and I was wearing my movie Judy. As for artists... Again, I don't really know anyone by name, but I remember a while back, I think there was like an Utina fashion zine. Yeah. And uh, Oscar yeah, did yeah. that, I believe. Oh, okay. Great. So closer to home than I thought. Um, and some pictures from that I remember I'd seen on Tumblr and they were really striking. So I definitely need to actually look into that and look at the full collection. Or if it wasn't Oscar, I know Oscar does uh, Utina zine stuff, so I'll just plug them anyway. <laughs> 
by all means. Speaking of the manga, uh, I, I know we have to wrap up soon, but I am curious, uh, have you read the manga? And if so, how do you feel about it? It's sort of a divisive I... topic. <laughs> yeah, I've read it. I don't care for it. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, heterosexual jury. True. No one likes that. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I feel like the manga falls into the pitfall a lot of manga do, which is not very good character development aside from the protagonist. Um, and I think that might just be, you know, a, a fortunate side effect of the time constraints placed on manga. You know, if you have to churn out this many pages per week, you're going to just try to make your base plot happen. And there's mm-hmm. not many time, not, there's not much time for, you know, tangents as it were. But I do find yeah. that the characters are kind of flat. The pacing always seems a little bit rushed. So it's not, not my bag. And I think uh, another thing that um, Utena and Onisamae have in common is that in the manga, you have a uh, girl with ginger ringlets who's just kind of a, a mean straight girl. And then in the anime, she becomes a tortured lesbian. So clearly one is superior to the other. Uh, real quick before we close up, um, I've heard of Onisamae, sure. but I don't know anything about it. What is Onisamae about? Sure. Um, it's it takes place at a an at an all girls uh, high school, and it's this very elite high school, um, kind of a bit more Western style. Like you're allowed to wear your own clothing. Um, you get the sense that you, you know you can wear makeup and style your hair. That's all things that you can't really do at a typical Japanese high school. And the school itself has this kind of club special society called the sorority which is this you know elite group of students you get picked from the class by the senior members and then you just get to do fancy things you know go to parties go to events you get extra tutoring all sorts of things like that um Mm -hmm. the main character even though she's the biggest normie who ever normed um (laughs) she somehow gets chosen for this sorority and isn't sure why and through that she gets sort of sucked in or rather she meddles in the lives of um the other characters and you find out all sorts of interesting traumatic secrets about them and it's definitely i'd say a character driven show rather than any big overarching plot you just kind of have arcs dealing with this character's you know trauma du jour and i think it's actually an exceptionally realistic portrayal of being a teenager just that sense that everything happens so much, but you only have, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 years of perspective with which to try to negotiate all the feelings you're feeling. And, you know, depending on your personal wiring or whatnot, you might handle that in very self-destructive ways. It's very sympathetic. Like I said, in the end, there's kind of the sense that, you know, patience and empathy and honesty will help you heal will help you be better equipped to handle yourself and i i love it i love it a lot it's definitely not everyone's cup of tea um especially the first arc that focuses on the younger characters can be a little like too much high school drama but i think it's worth sticking with that sounds like a lesson that That the characters of utana could use about honesty and (laughs) communication (laughs) right right yep yep um it's really good. I did a sort of 
translation revision of it about maybe 12 years ago at this point, but um, that would have been 2007, which was a very uh, edgy time as far as humor was concerned. <laughs> so oh boy, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm not too proud of some of those subtitles, but it is my absolute dream to translate the whole thing from the start and make that available because I'm not super satisfied with the translations I have seen available. And again, because it's it's my baby, I want to just, you know, go through it with a fine tooth comb and really just try to, again, get the nuance, get the speech patterns, get everything out there so that new viewers could really appreciate it, hopefully, as much as I do. Well, that's awesome. I hope one day that you get to do that for sure. Thank you. Yeah, maybe I'll just have to break another bone and then just get, you know, laid up in my house and be like, well, (laughs) nothing to do but translate 39 episodes of One Yee Is it only 39 episodes? Yeah, the only other series I know other than Utena, which has 39 episodes. It's an interesting number. (laughs) Right. But yeah, all right, well, we're reaching sort of the end of our time here. So um, is there, do you have any um, final thoughts about Utena, about your time with Utena? Yeah, gosh, I mean, I think Utena really shaped who I am as a person. Um, my aesthetics are absolutely informed by Utena. Um, before we recorded, I had a, uh, I had breakfast and I had, you know, rose jam and rose tea and all throughout my my home are rose everything. Um, I have a passion for sort of just the visual aesthetics of Utana, but also it really got me interested in in things that were a little strange, you know, things that just were off the beaten path. And I really am grateful to the series for for sort of opening my eyes to art that's strange, art that's maybe difficult to look at things that are difficult to engage with because sometimes they hit you close to home or you don't want to have to face that aspect of the world. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's really interesting. I've met a lot of incredible people through Utana, not just the empty movement community, but, you know, my my best friend I met through, you know, Utana cosplay. I've read some amazing fan fiction written by Utena writers. I've seen some beautiful, beautiful art. And yeah, I think the community that we've made in Empty Movement is really a special one. Um, There is just at the core of it, this true passion for communication and discussion and imagination. And it's a really, a really nice place to be. And I'm really happy that I've since reconnected with it after the musical. And yeah, so... um, yeah, thank you to, to Utana and thank you to you guys for uh, inviting me on your podcast. Oh, yes, of course. I've been very excited to talk to you basically since we since I got back from Japan. So I was really glad we were able to uh, to set this up. Yeah, and sorry that it was so delayed. But No, it's fine. My... <laughs> yeah, life happens. It really life does. injury and illness happens, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, um, if listeners if you would like to follow us on twitter you could do that at utinacast if you'd like to follow me on twitter you could do that at mpandanada alice where can people find you online they can find me um on twitter at liarwolf which is l-y-r-e-w-u-l-f do you have any other uh ongoing things that you would like to plug alice dear just, just the twitter, twitter. 
right. Um, Fukiko, I know that your online presence is uh, mostly a bit guarded. Most of your uh, accounts are private, but do you have anything uh, online that you would like to plug? Or, I mean, if you would like to plug your Twitter or other social media, you're more than welcome. Yeah, um, people can just find me on the Empty Movement Discord if they'd like to chat. All right. Well, um, thank you so much for coming on. It was a delight to get to talk to you and um, revolutionize the world, everybody. See you later. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.